Welcome to The Blind Side. News and information from a blindness perspective. Here's Jonathan Mosen. This is episode 81. It's a pleasure to have you here. And a reminder that if you are using a compatible app that supports the podcast chapters feature, you can easily skip forward and back between the different sections of this podcast. And there are a number today. It makes it easy for you to get straight to the point that you want to be. And if I'm waffling on about something too much, well, you can skip it and save yourself the stress. How about that? Our featured interview today is with David Raystrick. He's from Envision America, and you've probably heard of them because they've been around a while, doing a lot of good work in the field of barcode scanning primarily. So you may remember the big old ID mates, and like all good technology, it progresses, it gets smaller, it gets more powerful, and it gets online. So we'll look at the latest generation of ID mate from Envision America, and also talk about the really important subject of accessible prescriptions. If you have a medical condition and you're taking a whole bunch of pills, then it's just so critical to make sure that you're taking what you should be taking in the right dosage and also when you should be taking it. It's not so bad if you've got one or two or even three bottles of pills, but if you've got a whole bunch of things to take and you're trying to keep track of it by feel, it is a risky business and it doesn't have to be that way. So we'll talk about this and a whole lot more with David Raystrick in a little bit here on The Blind Side. First of all, I want to tell you about a couple of gadgets that I've got. One that I know I'm impressed with and another I'll be doing some work on over the next little while. The one I'm impressed with has actually really made a difference in terms of my iPhone 10 usage. And in talking about this on the blind phones list, Mosin Consulting does run a list for users of all types of cell phones. So there are iOS and Android lists out there. But we set up this blind phones list to encourage comparisons for people who maybe want to make a jump from one platform to another or who are getting into smartphones for the first time and they're thinking about what platform to go with. So the blind phones list is out there. And if you want to subscribe, just send a blank email to blindphones plus subscribe at groups.io. That's blindphones plus subscribe at groups.io. Now, when I mentioned this on the blind phones list, One or two people chimed in and said, yes, we've done this too. But as you know, if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, I purchased an iPhone 10, which I got back in November, and I'm enjoying it well enough. The gestures have just become second nature. And sometimes when I pick up Bonnie's phone because she wants me to do something with it or whatever, and I, I think, oh my goodness, this thing's got a home button and it feels odd. It is amazing how quickly the brain adapts to new things. Face ID, I've just become at peace with that as well. It's really fine. I don't have any difficulty with it. And in my studio here, where I spend a lot of my time cloistered away, oh, I have a wireless charging pad. And up until now, it's been one of the ones that's been recommended by Apple, and you can pick it up in the Apple store. And it just lies flat, the phone does, on its back on the pad. And that's fine. The thing is, though, if you get a notification then really I found it necessary to kind of pick the phone up and look at the phone and unlock it. I don't have my screen set to automatically lock, by the way, and I have my brightness set down to zero and I have the screen curtain on. So quite often I just leave it on during the day, which means that I don't have to unlock the phone at all. And a while ago, I was asked to give a presentation and it involved using video. It's nice that you can give these global presentations now so often without leaving the house. Very environmentally friendly, good on my ears, good on the budget, all good. But because it involved video, 
I got my little iPhone dock out that I've had for a wee while. This is just a tiny thing that Apple makes, and it's got a little base. You slot the phone in on top, and the base clips into the lightning port, and the iPhone dock connects to power, so you've got charge. And the thing about this is it keeps the phone upright. So if you're giving a presentation and say reading from a Braille display, reading your notes, looking at the phone, well, the phone's upright, it's sturdy, and it's all good. What I then noticed, of course, was that it was beautiful for Face ID because whenever I got a notification, I would just look to my right and the thing unlocked. Voila, that's your actual French, by the way, voila. We do have some listeners in France. Bonjour. Yeah, it was good. And so then I went on a mission and I thought, surely there's got to be wireless chargers that angle the phone this way. And indeed, there is a bunch of wireless chargers that angle the phone this way at various price points. And I decided to get the Samsung wireless charger, the one that is recommended for the Galaxy S8 and now the S9. It's a really nice piece of hardware. Keeps the phone quite cool, actually. And you can use it the way that you use all these charging pads, flat, but you can also angle it so that the phone is upright. If you're sighted, you can see the screen, and that's great. But for everybody, blind or sighted, who has an iPhone 10 with Face ID, the big upshot of this configuration is that when your phone wakes up with a notification, and as a voiceover user, you hear that notification, and you think, oh, yeah, I want to explore this, just look to, in my case, you're right, because the iPhone's on the right of me, the phone unlocks because I'm right in view of the true depth camera and we're away. So it's a nice little investment. And there are a bunch of these, as I say, from Amazon. You can read reviews. I think there are articles in tech publications about the various upright charges. And what's interesting, too, is that we're still waiting, aren't we? We are still waiting for Apple's air power mat. They talked about this when they announced wireless charging back in September at the event where they revealed the uh, current generation of iPhones. And they said, we're going to do a thing called Air Power. It'll be a mat, and it will allow you to charge your Apple Watch and your phone and your AirPods all on the same thing. Well, I think we're well over 200 days since they told us that that was coming, but we don't have it yet. So I will be uh, keen to have a play with that and to, to just explore it when the Air Power charging mat finally does arrive. The other little problem I've been trying to solve is this. As you know, Bonnie and I now have Ira, and we've talked about Ira extensively here on The Blind Side back in episode 78, and I blogged about it as well, and we just love it. We really do. And I said to Bonnie, we've got a challenge that we need to try and resolve, and that is this. As a blind couple, how can we set things up so that when we say go to a festival or a market or somewhere outdoorsy like that, that we can both hear the description that the agent is giving us? There's got to be a way. And of course, the simplest way would be to get one of those double 3.5 adapter plugs, plug it into the lightning adapter of the iPhone, and then both of us having wired somethings. In my case, that would be a cable that goes to my hearing aids, which is what I use anyway. Bonnie would use wireless earbuds of some kind that didn't block out too much noise or I guess aftershocks. Well, the downside of that is you can imagine the fun if you get separated in some way and you're tethered to each other by these wires. It's not going to be pretty. And so I thought we've got to find a solution that is at least wireless for Bonnie because I'm always cabled to my hearing aids anyway. So that's that's sorted. 
I did a bit of research and I found this tiny device. It's really, really small. If you put it in the pocket, you might lose it. And it's got a 3.5 headphone jack on it. And that is designed for input. So in this case, you would have a cable going from the 3.5 jack of this tiny little device. And there'll be a 3.5 at the other end, which will plug into the male-female adapter. And then I'll keep the receiver. Now, when you turn this receiver on, which just goes in your pocket with your iPhone because it's so small, you wouldn't even know it's there. That then creates a Bluetooth signal. And Bonnie is then able to pair her AirPods. You know, she has to disconnect her AirPods from the phone. And then she can pair her AirPods with this Bluetooth transmitter because it's just displaying itself as another Bluetooth audio device. And what that then means, yeah, the latency isn't bad, what that then means is that we can both walk around Bonnie completely wirelessly and both hear the instructions of the IRA agent. And having figured this out, we've got to put it through a few more practical tests, of course, but you can imagine how liberating it is. As a blind couple, sometimes there are places that you just choose not to go because you think, oh, well, yeah, it's probably quite visual. It might be a bit of a difficult environment. And if one of the kids wants to go with us, then that's great. You know, we might do that. But there are certain things we might just think, oh, we'll, we'll give this a miss because we just need some sighted assistance on hand to really navigate all the different stalls and things like that. But obviously, if we can do this and we can take Ira with us, Bonnie completely wirelessly, me connected the way I'm connected anyway, then it just opens up so many possibilities. So I will let you know how that goes in practical field testing. This little Bluetooth device is from a company called JCAR Electronics here in New Zealand. But I think there are probably very similar Bluetooth transmitter devices all over the web that you may be able to find if you're interested in pursuing this. It also has the benefit, of course, of making wireless any number of um, wired things that you might want to pair with. So quite a nifty little gadget. It just has a little micro USB port in it that it charges with. Administrative stuff to do with the podcast? Well, a couple of things. First, it looks as if when I check the Alexa skill, it has now rolled out to the United Kingdom. So we previewed a wee while ago our cool skill for the Amazon Echo. And it now appears that it is in the US Amazon Echo store and also in the UK one. And so if you want to try this, if you're in the Great Britain Amazon Echo store, you simply say the magic wake word and then enable the blind side podcast. It will enable it. You'll then be able to use our custom made skill for the blind side podcast. I am hoping that we will be able to roll this out, particularly to my home country of New Zealand, because it's kind of embarrassing that we <laughs> we don't even have the blindside skill here in the uh, Australia and New Zealand store. Uh, rollout is a bit slower than I would like, but I think it is happening. And so uh, have some patience. And eventually, I hope that we will be able to get that skill to everybody. In the meantime, though, you can, of course, play the Blindside podcast by many other means, including TuneIn, iHeartRadio, if you're in an iHeartRadio area, and Spotify. In those cases, one of the downsides is that if you pause, because you just can't take any more, you know, you're going to take me in small doses, right? And I get that. Then resuming can be a bit problematic if you go and do something else with your Echo. Uh, it doesn't remember where you were. However, there is this skill called AnyPod, which is designed specifically for playing podcasts, and that will pick up. If you stop the blind side in midstream, 
you can pick up from where you left off. So if you don't have our skill, and on the Amazon Echo, our own skill is the best way to um, work with the Blindside podcast, then give any pot a try. He's doing an epic job, an epic job with that. Also, we were thrilled this week to be featured by Libsyn as the Rockin' Libsyn podcast of the week. Thanks, guys. We really appreciate that. And if you would like to read the article about the Blind Side that they have published, then I will link to that in the show notes and you can click through and take a look. And the Blind Side podcast is now on one less place, and that is Facebook. And if you haven't caught up with this, I published a blog post on the Mosin Consulting site, mosin.org slash delete Facebook. All one word is where you find that, mosin.org slash delete Facebook. And in that post, I sought to make the case for why I've personally decided to delete Facebook and to take Mosin Consulting with it as an ethical and moral matter. And I realize that there could be some financial implications for us in taking the stand, but I think it is important to take it. When I have talked to people about this, many of whom I don't think have even read the blog post or chosen to understand the issues at play here, a lot of people have shrugged their shoulders and said, one of two things. First, I'm not going to delete Facebook because there's too many people I know on there and I'm on lots of groups and I like it too much. And of course, that's exactly what Facebook has been banking on. Facebook is banking on the idea that you are so connected with people in a way that you can't be on any other platform, that they will be able to do whatever they like and you will just stay there and take it. The second thing that I hear from people is, ah, you know, but they're all just as bad. Twitter is just as bad. Google's just as bad. There's no such thing as privacy on the internet. And it saddens me because I think we do have a personal decision to make. We have a decision to make about what we consider acceptable we also have a decision to make about whether we believe that the contrition that is being expressed by Facebook is real or not. We have heard these sorts of groveling apologies before, and obviously things have culminated now in this Cambridge Analytica scandal. So while we all have a call to make, and it's a personal decision that I think people need to respect, we have a call to make about whether this is beyond our comfort threshold. But one thing I think we have an obligation to do is to actually familiarize ourselves with the facts and not to shrug our shoulders and claim that Twitter has done this too and Google has done this too when they absolutely have not. When I've confronted people about this and said, can you give me a single example of Twitter or Google having the data of up to 87 million people stolen, used without their consent? Funnily enough, nobody can. Now, there have been data breaches in the past, but I don't recall a data breach of this magnitude before. More broadly, I don't recall a situation where a senior executive of another company, such as Twitter or Google or Amazon for that matter, has said it doesn't actually matter if a terrorist attack is caused by us connecting people, connecting people is all we care about. And as you will have seen, if you've read my blog post, that's what one of the vice presidents at Facebook said. I am also not aware of Google or Twitter or Amazon, those big companies, Microsoft, I guess, is in that list of big companies as well, having ever surveyed any of its users about whether it's okay for men to ask for pictures of young girls, girls under age. Facebook did that recently. 
And whenever they do this, they just keep apologizing. It is really easy to get caught up in the momentum of a movement like this. And make no mistake, it is a movement. Over 30% of tech workers who were recently surveyed say they are considering seriously deleting Facebook. In a CBS poll that came out today as we publish, 63% of people say that they have um, lost confidence in Facebook in terms of managing their data. So there is a real crisis for Facebook and its board. We are publishing just as Mark Zuckerberg is uh, doing his first of two testimonies to Congress on Capitol Hill this week. And so it's easy to kind of get swept along in the tide. And that's why I waited about three weeks before I deleted my Facebook to be sure that I really felt that this was something important, that it was an important matter of principle, that it wasn't just a knee-jerk reaction and that I was being swept along in the social media frenzy that you sometimes get uh, in social media these days where people have all this anger about something. To me, this is something worth standing up for. It's something worth potentially taking a revenue hit for in terms of Mosin Consulting. You are welcome to comment on this and any other issue, of course. We have two ways for you to do that. You can drop me an email. You can write something down in that email or you can attach an audio clip and you can send it to theblindside at mosin.org. That's theblindside at mosin.org. You can also call the feedback line on 719-270-5114. That number is in the United States. 719-270-5114. And incidentally, if you were wanting to delete Facebook, as an increasing number of people are, I'm going to provide a link in the show notes to a page that will allow you to delete your Facebook account. And this is not a deactivation process. This is the big one. This is pushing that nuclear button. And you can delete your Facebook. It uh, has a 14-day grace period where you can reverse the decision if you have second thoughts. It's kind of weird. I deleted my Facebook app and I deleted my Messenger app after doing the big deletion on the site. And it reminded me of when I was a young guy and I looked very young for my age when I was in my 20s. And so I thought to myself, I know what I'll do. I'll grow a mustache. You know, it might look make me look a bit older. So I grew this mustache. And then on my 30th birthday, I thought, OK, now it's time to shave the mustache off again because I wouldn't mind looking a bit younger. So I shaved the moustache off, and for the next few days, I was kind of looking for it. It was weird, just this sort of thing that had been a big part of my life, and it was gone. And Facebook has been a lot like that. I reach for it when I've got a couple of minutes to kill, and of course, it's not there. So it is quite an interesting experience. But also, I have noted that my battery life has improved quite a bit since removing Facebook as well. So pretty happy. But anyway, where I'm getting to with this is that I will provide a link in the show notes to a delete Facebook page. Some people have tried to delete Facebook and have told me that they've been hit by an inaccessible capture. <laughs> it's like the Hotel California of social networks, you know. But um, this page doesn't have a capture. It's really easy to delete Facebook if you would like. And as a service, I will link to that page in the show notes. I reminded that we always look forward to your feedback, and there are two ways primarily that you can give that to us. You can drop me an email to theblindside at mosin.org, and you can write something down in that email, or you can attach an audio clip. Either is fine, theblindside at mosin.org. You can also call the feedback line, and that number in the United States is 719-270-5114. 719-270-5114. It's time to hear from this week's featured guest on the blind side. 
Envision America is a company that has been serving our blind community for quite some time. They are based in Florida, and I remember purchasing an ID made from Envision America. Gosh, it must have been about 2005 and 2006, and this was something that allowed me to identify products by their barcode long before there were smartphone and other options. And to tell me about what Envision is up to now, I'm joined by David Raystrick. It's great to have you on the podcast. Thanks so much for being here. Yes. Hi, Jonathan. How are you? Super well. Nice to be talking with you. Tell me a little bit about, for those people who haven't heard of Envision before, a bit about the company history and what it uh, what its purpose is. Well, yeah, we've, we have been around a while now. <laughs> it's been... Um, since uh, 1996 is when we started, and uh, long before the advent of smartphones and and other things, and we uh, we started with our our little project called IDMate, uh, the barcode scanner, and um, we have done very well with the product, and it's been through now six generations of different product iterations. And so, yeah, we've uh, we've been, and I know we've met Jonathan at ACB. We've met mm-hmm. uh, in the past at, at many shows and and events, and um, it's been uh, a, a real uh, great honor to kind of be part of um, and, and meet you and and others involved. So, it yeah, IDMate was our first product. That was the the impetus for for doing that. And really it kind of came about, um, I've got, um, RP in my family, retinitis pigmentosa. Um, although it doesn't affect me, it affected two of my uncles. And so from the very outset, you know, I've lived with blindness in my family and we've, you know, really kind of seen how vision impairment, um, can be overcome using different technologies and, um, one of my uncles worked for the state of Illinois in the U.S. Um, and with the Department of Rehabilitation. His name uh, was Jerry Raystrick. And uh, he had a lot of friends and folks that he knew with the state that um, were interested in this whole area when we started looking at it and um, gave a prototype uh to my uncle and he took it around and showed it around. They said, Hey, this is great. And this is all the way again, back in 96, 97. And so we started that, that process of, of showing it to folks and getting a little bit of encouragement. <laughs> and um, we continued to get encouragement. And then lo and behold, we came out with this ID mate one, the very first version. Now, Jonathan, I don't know, remember which one, you had, but way back then, all it would do is record information associated with the barcode. Yeah, the one I had, I think it might be in the second generation or something like that. It had a compact flash card, which had yeah. the database that you would put in there. Yeah, so the that was the the very first database, and we came out with that one right around uh, right around the year two thousand. Wow, um, yeah. the ID made two, and then we went through other iterations, the IDMate Omni, the Summit, the Quest, and now we're on Galaxy. Um, And the Galaxy has uh, a lot of great features. It's internet connected and um, a lot of neat stuff, Um, uh, better voice and those, those sort of things that have really helped out a lot. But internet connectivity is great because we have this database that's constantly getting updated 
and and way back then we would have to get folks uh downloads and they would download their own the database and then put it onto a compact flashcard. Now it's just wireless. So it's really a nice, um, a nice way to do that. It's funny how someone comes up with an idea and after someone came up with the idea, you kind of think, wow, that is just such an obvious no brainer kind of idea. And it's made this big impact. I mean, the idea that you could use those barcodes that are so ubiquitous, you know, they're on everything to help a blind person know what it is that they have is just, so simple but you guys thought of it and you implemented it and you did it in a really effective way right yeah and, and you know all the products that are out there now and i'm i'm not going to take credit for a lot but you know things like PenFriend and other things that really do recordings associated with a barcode or indica you know any kind of symbol or symbology that's on a product or on other things and doing recordings associated with um we originally kind of, that was the ID Mate 1. That was the original version. And what's nice to see is the evolution of a product, you know, throughout the years and how it's kind of come from, you know, really simple, simple products and it's getting more complicated. And our goal was really to try and keep the ID Mate relevant. And so way back when with the, with, let's say way back when with the product before this with the um with the quest we we put a camera in it and we started to do all kinds of fun stuff and uh ultimately it came down to we're getting too complex <laughs> so we need to go back to the basics and that's what the id made galaxy is it's just truly back to the basics easy to use easy to navigate you know accessible buttons um you know, you know, really nice talking singular use device. When I had the IDMate 2, the compact flash card was for US products and we got some US products and we didn't get others. And so I would sometimes take quite some time to, to teach it the barcodes for products here in New Zealand as we did shopping. Um, you mentioned on the websites that there are databases for multiple countries now. So who, who would benefit from the databases in the IDMate Galaxy now? Yeah, so there's just different download um, databases. There's download for UK. There's downloads for, um, for Canada. We're primarily, uh, although... We do have French and um, German and other languages in our device in the Galaxy. Um, our focus kind of has been on English speaking for whatever reason. We seems like we get a lot of databases for English speaking uh, countries, and so we just take that data. And so, really, hey, our ultimate goal with the ID Mate is nothing more than information we try and get away from it's about the device because in all honesty, the device is the means to the ends. The ends is the information that's coming out of that thing. That's telling you about the product that you're, that you're there for. So our job really begins and ends with collecting great data and, and making it available to folks that happen to scan this, this barcode that's on the product that's associated with it. Can you tell me about the dimensions of the device? How small is it? What does it What does it look like? So yeah, the the IDMate Galaxy is uh, about uh, seven inches long, and it's got a 
a head on it that has kind of a it's got a handle and a head and, and the head is the barcode scanner so it's a barcode scanner module that's inside of there and it's kind of like a right angle i'm going to say it's kind of like a gun feeling um but it's it's just kind of the light comes off right angle to your hand the module the barcode scanner module is a laser omnidirectional scanner so it's really scanning in this pattern that makes kind of a hatch mark pattern when the light comes out it hits the product and it's just constantly looking for for barcodes and kind of the the nice thing about the product is truly that scanner's ability to see a barcode that maybe goes by really quickly so we need scanners that are aggressive and so it's kind of high tech it's kind of a really high tech scanner the other thing that varies in a lot of homes and for folks is the amount of ambient light that's in a room with like an app or with what would be considered a camera based scanner variations in light and reflections of light uh, have an effect on on a scan so that's what makes this better it, it uses a laser scanner that then bounces that so it's got its own light source so when it shines onto a product and bounces back then it, it can it reads its its own light source essentially this is one of the challenges with ios solutions and probably the best ones i, I the best one i've seen is is seeing ai where it tries to give you kind of like a getting warmer method but Sometimes you can spend a long, long time with an iPhone trying to hone in on that barcode. So how long would it typically take for a blind person who has no clue about where the barcode is on the product to locate the code? And, and how do they locate the code? Are they getting auditory feedback? It's, it's really fairly quickly for most people. You know, they're, because of the nature of, of the window and the ability, and when they go through the little training modules that we have. We have onboard training and we have these, um, um, a CD-ROM, an audio CD, a CD that they can pop in if they have that, or we have it online too, you know, or they can listen to it online. You know, just quickly walking through and understanding the buttons is the big part. And then using like a sample barcode that we send with it. Folks are able to kind of conceptualize and understand where the light is hitting the product a little easier because it's a flat window putting that flat window right up on and i'm just going to say the window is about a um about two inches or two and a quarter inches by two and a quarter inches the window where the light emanates from so as that light's coming out you're able to um you know, scan over the product fairly quickly. So once you go and scan the card, you kind of understand it. A little more complex types of products you can you do, and you just kind of you develop an ease of using the product. So folks that use it, the more you use it, the better you get. It's kind of like anything. <laughs> if you're if you do it a lot, you're you're good at what you do. And you can record your own barcodes and add them to things like items of clothing and accessories, that sort of thing. But if it's a product that has a barcode on it already, you often do go well beyond just telling people what the product is. There's a lot of detailed information in many cases. Yeah, yeah. 
that's again, that's part of that whole, the data is the uh, ends to the, to the mean and the means is the scanner. So I've got an example of a product. I'll, I'll demonstrate it real quick here. I've mm-hmm. got a, uh, a ready-made breakfast bowl here. So I'll go ahead and scan this guy. Uh, let me turn it up here. Online price. Barcode inventory. Browse inventory memo system. Help. ID mode. So I just went through the modes there and I found ID mode. So now I'm going to scan the product. Product Jimmy Dean breakfast bowl. Meat lovers. Okay. So Jimmy. Continue. So whenever it says continue, that means there's more data in the database. So let me hit the down arrow real quick here. Package size 7 ounce. 198 G. Product description eggs, potatoes, sausage, cheddar cheese, and bacon. Quality guarantee. Since 1969, ice inspected and passed by Department of Agriculture 24. G protein 25% more meat than the leading breakfast bowl. Made from authentic ingredients like real eggs, real cheese, and premium quality pork and bacon. At Jimmy Dean. We are committed to providing you with the best tasting breakfast products made with the highest quality ingredients. Jimmy D quality you can trust. You're paused. So I just paused it. I mean, it, I hope so they pay me for that, Ed. <laughs> all good stuff. <laughs> and it's stuff that you might want to listen to one time and you never listen to it again. Yeah, honestly. yeah. But but that's good because you've got the freedom to, right? And that's exactly what a sighted person might do. You know, if they like the product, they'll look it over once. Uh, that would be a very nice low-carb breakfast if they would just do a version without the potatoes, actually. you know. The, that's the, right. Yeah, the, good low-carb breakfast there. would have been perfect. Now, yeah. am I right in saying you're using the nuanced Tom voice there? Um, yes, that, that's, that's correct. Yeah, um, I never forget a face. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, do you have so, a choice of voices, no. or is that the voice that you you always adopt? It's dinging here, so sorry about that. Go ahead, say that again. Is is there a choice of voices, or is that the one that that you use universally? We do have we do have choice of voices, but it's usually all male voice, um, and that's primarily because of high timber difficulty in in understanding and hearing. Um, it's. A, Hearing loss is typically in the higher ranges and the higher um, uh, frequencies of of sound. So we keep it to a deeper voice, which has really helped in terms of the numbers of people um, that that use it. So yeah, yeah, that, that's fantastic that you're sensitive to that. Right, exactly. So all of the languages that we have are are male voices. Now, that was a pretty astonishing amount of information from that barcode, so that's really impressive. In terms of the barcode products, is that something you are considering bringing to mobile devices in any way, or do you think the user experience would suffer from trying to put a product like IDMate in an app form? Truly, we've been we've wrestled with this for a long time and and tried to to look at the possibilities of, of having an app. And we've always gotten back to, um, again, ease of use and, and how difficult it is to sometimes find a barcode on a product using, um, using an app or using a camera. So we've always opted away from it. We've tested a lot. We've, 
We've looked at different types of even scanners and camera-based CCD scanners, and they, they just couldn't hold the candle to, to what we use now. And so that's why we've kind of stuck to our guns. We'll continue to look at it. But at, as of this point right now, we've kind of opted towards um, really making an easy to use, simple scanner that, that really works every time. You're not, um, you're not left kind of holding the bag of chips, so to speak, uh, trying to figure out what it is. Uh, we've, um, we've got this great scanner that's working, but we're, we're, you know, we're always looking at other technologies and ways to accomplish. Again, how do you get information into the hands of the consumer in the quickest way and the quickest means. So what sort of price point is the ID mate selling at? Yeah, it's uh, $1,299 or $1,300. So again, you know, it's an expensive product for a singular use type of thing. But um, uh, what we tell folks is, hey, try it out because once you start using it, you'll, it'll become a part of your life. And, you know, uh, we even have a no excuses guarantee and rarely will we ever get one back mainly because folks use it. They see the value of it and uh, you know, they know it becomes a friend of theirs that helps them through uh, identification of all types, anything really you touch. So using playing cards and playing poker and other card games uh, even, um, identifying items around your house that you wouldn't even think about. You know, folks identify, you know, put a barcode on different areas of their um, circuit breaker in their homes to identify what area of the house was affected for that, for example. Clothing is another example. You mentioned it earlier, barcodes on clothes. People don't think about it, but you can identify and, and, what the what the piece of garment is and how to how to um, how to wash that particular um, item, you know stuff assets in the house, computers, you know where where you bought it, what you bought it for, those kind of things just are invaluable to folks if they take the time to put a barcode on something and identify it and and use the system uh, to to help you you know, keep all that information in one place. I take it it has a headphone jack. It does. Yeah, man, because, I mean, if you're going to be playing poker, you've got to keep that poker face and you don't want the ID mate blasting out the cards over the speaker, do you? Well, yeah, and it's funny because when my, I, you know, I told you my uncles, what we have, I have two uncles, one knows Braille and one doesn't. And so, you know, we started using Braille cards and that didn't work. So, uh, because as he's, as one, my uncle, he would joke with us. I just read your ace of spades <laughs> and he would, he would throw you the card. And, um, so we got to the point where we started putting barcodes on the back of cards and it works famously. As long as you have that earphone jack, <laughs> you gotta have that. So this guy has Bluetooth too. So you can do a Bluetooth headset with it. How does it charge? It uses USB charging. So you can use a, a standard mini um, USB um, connector. It runs when it's charging and when it's, um, you know, when it's plugged in, it'll, you can scan barcodes even then, but 
pretty well the battery is what for this version is uh, what's great because you can use it all day non-stop and and then just charge it at night um and you'll have a full charge uh throughout you know the day and do you connect so, it to the pc to set up the wi-fi or is that done standalone on the device it is done standalone on the device you can do it through a pc um, but pretty well, it's easier just to do it standalone on the device. You just select a, an SSID or a network that you have and, and then use the next and previous buttons to kind of select the characters. Um, it's a one-time thing. Uh, it's kind of a pain at first when you do it, but it's fairly easy to do. And the fact is you only have to do it one time. That's really good. Yeah, that's really interesting. Another area that you have been involved in is this business of prescriptions. And it's something that people don't think about a lot until it happens to them. I'm not the kind of guy who usually gets sick enough to need medication. But a few weeks ago, I did get actually quite ill. (laughs) And I had a whole bunch of medication from the doctor. And you've really got to keep your mental faculties about you if that medication isn't labeled. You know, maybe you get lucky and it feels distinctly different. And that's part of it. But then, of course, you've got to remember, well, when do I take this one? And when did they say I should take that one? So this is a really serious situation that you're trying to deal with here. It literally could be a life and death situation. Right. Yeah, a lot of lot of errors can be made just by not checking yourself out, you know having um, such potentially dangerous uh, medications at your fingertips and not being able to just double check what, number one, what you have. A lot of times it's more what the pharmacy gives you. I think, uh, you know, a lot of folks will say that, you know, they'll think they, uh, you know, maybe got a medication, they maybe got the right medication, but they doubled the dose and then ask you to split the pill yourself well you didn't get that that piece of information in the translation of uh, what your pharmacist told you and you're double dosing another thing that we see is with um, um, insulin and long acting and short acting insulins you know getting them confused Um, you know you might have one and and and, you know, folks, folks can get really seriously ill if they're taking their medication incorrectly. So it's one of those things. Some folks, just like the idemic kind, I think it's, you know, you, you have it as, as a tool to give you the information you need when you need it. Some folks might need that every day and every time they take their medication, they check it out. Someone else might just use it to kind of organize their medications on the shelf and just verify what they have. And others, you know, might really use it to organize into pill containers or pill packs, you know, to organize it with maybe their, um, you know, their multivitamins or their D3 um, vitamin D um, caplets. You know, so where they use their, they've got their prescription meds and all their vitamins and and other things all organized into a a pill organizer. So 
there's different ways that folks use it, but the fact remains, it's again, the information is critical and without it, it can be dangerous. And this is where script talk comes in, correct? And this is something that you've been promoting quite heavily across the United States and, and Canada too, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. All over um, really North America in particular, um, we've gotten a lot of adoption. Um, and we've been doing this for a long time too. I mean, mm-hmm. it's we started way back in 2003 with the VA. So it's been a number of years that the VA has been doing it nationwide. And, you know, folks, I think a lot of your podcast listeners know about script talk from way back um, when we didn't have any adoption. And now that we do have a lot of the major mail order pharmacies, for example, that are doing it, uh, folks like Humana, um, Express Scripts, uh, CVS Caremark. These are all big, big companies. Aetna, um, OptumRx. You know, these are the big guys that are mailing out prescriptions and probably mail out 80% of all prescriptions to folks like, uh, like me, you know, through the mail. Then there's the the, the stores themselves, the pharmacies themselves that, um, you know, a, a lot of them are adopting like Walmart, Rite Aid, um, folks like Winn-Dixie and, and others that, um, that are doing it, uh, you know, nationwide. So we're excited. We're really excited about the adoption across the U.S. When, but when we do lack a lot of those, you know, if you, if you went down to your own uh, mom and pop pharmacy, they won't know what you're talking about. Um, you know, a lot of these pharmacies just don't know and they need to know um, about, you know, safety and medication safety for folks that just don't have access to the label. I was reading recently about some advocacy from uh, particularly a, a man named Bill Powers in Arizona which has, uh, it, what, no, was it Arizona or was it Nevada? Nevada. Yeah, yeah, yeah get those two mixed up. Which has resulted in some law now that says that these prescriptions must be compulsory. So that's a significant development for Nevada. Big time, yeah. It's, it's big. You know, you get, you get folks bending the right ear of the right congressman that understands the need and says, we got to do something about this. We can't continue to have folks denied equal rights for information. And it's one thing not to have equal rights for, you know, information for my Jimmy Dean breakfast bowl, <laughs> but it sure is another situation when you don't have access to something that is dangerous as, as medications can be. And so, that's what happened in Nevada. How does it work as an end user who wants to take advantage of of this technology? Generally speaking, uh, you know, like with the VA, for example, the Department of Veterans Affairs in the United States, those folks just go to uh, their VIST coordinator, um, and that's just a visual impairment service team coordinator, and they can get it issued to them for free. Others that are on the retail side. So for example, if you've got a Walmart that you use, 
or would like to use and you would like to get script talk, you would simply go into that Walmart and say, you know, I would like to get script talk and what, you know, what do I need to do? You get your, as long as your meds are there, they'll send information to us and you'll get your reader for free as part of the whole deal through Walgreens or really through most pharmacies have this kind of reciprocal agreement where, you know, we'll provide these readers on loan for free to anybody. It's kind of like the lend a lending library of the device so we send one of the reader devices out to you if you need one um so that's kind of how it works but ultimately the pharmacy is still responsible for putting that little electronic label on it so we didn't really talk about how it kind of works and a lot of folks know how it works but it's got a little microchip in the label that stores all the text from the label um, and so once you then put it up close to one of the readers, all the information is spoken out. And most recently, we've added Android and iOS to the mix, too. Uh, the iOS version is coming out soon. It should be out by the end of the month. And uh, so folks can just download the app, go to their pharmacy and say, hey, I want this. Uh, you know, in many cases, they might have to demand uh, that they that they get it again through things like uh, you know helping to instigate laws like the SB 131 in Nevada that that really has made a big difference in that state. Is it an onerous task for the pharmacist to know how to produce the appropriate label? Not at all. Not at all. In fact, we have a lot of the systems that pharmacy systems that are out there, we have what integrations with them. So the data actually slides right from their pharmacy system. So there's no keying of information or any of that doesn't take the pharmacist a ton of time to, to make a label. Um, it all comes from the pharmacy system and then they program the label. So, you know, it takes less than a minute for them to, to completely fill a medication and put the script talk label on it. Um, so it's, it's an easy process for pharmacies to do and, you know, not much expense either, especially on the part of the, of the individual, there's really no cost to the individual. And the apps are free too for download. And I've got an example of of the iOS app. Mm. If you'd like to, I'd love if you like me to yeah. demo that. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, I'm going to go ahead and uh, voiceover on car camera DVR script talk beta. Okay, so that's our double beta, tap to open beta app here in iOS. So I'm going to double tap script talk scan. Button. Okay, so there's really just three, um, really two two buttons, but uh, I'll just go ahead and I get the scan button, and uh, that's all the way in the upper left of the screen. So I'll I'll swipe to the right. Script talk mobile heading. This is the heading, and then I got help, help. button. So that's all there is right now, at least um, in terms of ease of use. So I'm going to go back Script to scan. scan. Button. And then I'm going to double tap the scan. Alert. Now I get a little scan. ticking sound. So I'm just going to hold the uh, the prescription. The label is actually on the bottom of the vial, the pill bottle. And all I need to do is hold it the top half inch 
both the front and back of the iPhone. That's all the, the read area, if you will. So I'm going to go ahead and just hold it up to the kind of the top face of the reader, the very edge. And then it gets a read. Script talk, patient, John J. Smith. Okay, so there's John J. Smith. And I'll just swipe through this uh, from left to right here. Medication, amoxicillin 250 milligrams capsule. Okay. Instructions, take one capsule three times daily. Okay. Quantity, 30 capsule. Prescription date, January 10, 2018. Expiration date, January 10. 2019. So I can go all the way through. I'm Refills just going to quickly go Prescriber. through. Scriptability pharmacy. Pharmacy phone. 309. 555. 1, 2, 1, 2. Now that's a phone number, so I can double tap on that and I can call my pharmacy if I want to. Prescription number. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. Okay, so now I get warning. to the warning. Important. Finish. Warning. Persistent diarrhea due to colitis may rarely occur weeks or months. More information. And then I have a, a, a double tap for more information that I can get more information about that prescription. Now, this is the information that they give folks all the information on, let's just say, how to use the medication, what to do if they miss a dose, um, how to store the medication. Those kind of details are all really critical in their own right, but they're not even on the label. So folks get this prescription education or medication education information sheets that aren't accessible either. Well, they're accessible now with the Script Talk uh, mobile app. So they can get it right there on the app. Um, so it's, it's, it's really handy. And um, again, with the mobile app, it's we're just starting to make it available. Um, the app itself is probably going to be in the app store uh, starting the first or early part of April. And uh, we think it's going to be great because folks already have the capability. If they have a smartphone, they already have the capability for medications and for reading their medications. And, um, you know, they don't need to wait for a reader from us, although they can get a reader from us still for free they can use this app to get that. That is uh, super impressive. Is this happen. something that could be rolled out to other countries who currently don't have it, or is there something a bit proprietary about the way that the prescription system works in North America? It's not proprietary at all. In fact, it's something that uh, we've always been interested in, and the uh, really the bandwidth of, of doing it has kind of limited us to accomplish some of that. But um, because of the ubiquity of, of smart devices out there, there's really no need to not roll it out into other, other countries and give the ability in other areas too. Um, so if anybody wants to contact me and, uh, you know, outside the U S and Canada, for sure, we can definitely help. And what's nice too, is obviously an iOS and an Android, you've got, you know, every language possible um, out there for available that's available to folks um, is out. It's not just, you know, three or four languages that we have with the current script talk. So it's going to open up a huge opportunity for, uh, you know, safe medication adherence in other countries too. There's no need 
to uh, take your medications and not know what you have. The technology is there now and we can, we can get it out anywhere that uh, folks want it. It's exciting. Is there anything else at Envision America that we haven't covered that you wanted to let listeners know about? Well, no, I don't think there's really a lot. We've been we've been working really hard to, you know, make sure that that we get a lot of these integrations, like with these pharmacy companies, and and that's really has been our focus. Uh, you know, although IDMate's an important product for us still, this this pharmacy technology. Uh, is really booming for us. I mean, we've got a lot of folks on the pharmacy side taking note and contacting us and a lot of folks that, that are helping to advocate for medication safety. And so every year and coming up in October, we have medication safety um, awareness month is the month of October. So any, any, med- any folks that want to join in and participate to make medications safe, uh, whether they want to talk to pharmacies or whether they want to go out to their, uh, again, congressmen and, um, and lobby for this to be available for all pharmacies in their state or in their country. Those are the kind of things and those are the people that really truly make a difference. It's those, those advocates that work tirelessly to make sure that folks know about it and uh, take note of the need and the issue. Let's talk about the website. If people want to find out some more, when can, where can people visit you on the web? Yeah, terrific. Yeah. So it's uh, envisionamerica.com. That's E-N-Visionamerica, all one word, dot com. If anybody wants to call us, they can call us at 800-890-1180. Outside of the U.S., area code 309-452-3088. We've got Twitter account and just put in Envision America. You can find us there. And same with, uh, same with Facebook. Just put Envision America and you'll find us first, first link. It is pretty impressive the way that this thing just scans the barcodes. It's, it's pretty slick. So there you go. Envision America. Do check them out. On the blind side now, let's take a look at some of your feedback. 719-270-5114 is the number if you would like to call in and leave a message on the feedback line. 719-270-5114. That is a United States number. And the email address is theblindside at mosin.org. Hi, Jonathan. This is Mary Otten from Eugene, Oregon. And I'm just calling in, first of all, to thank you for introducing the chapters into the program. It's hugely helpful, and I hope you keep doing it, and I hope more people take advantage of it. The second thing is I wanted to agree with your comments on the use of language and the word blind. I really can't say any more on that than you did, because I think you did such a good job of explaining why it's absurd with this people-first language. I have blind friends, of course, who violently disagree with me, and that's their right, but I'm perfectly good with the word blind. Handicapped might be a bit of a problem. It's a bit general in the one example in the article where the person was a user of a wheelchair and they were first referred to as handicapped. Of course, we don't have a single word to describe a wheelchair user. So, you know, maybe in some cases it's okay to use that rather than handicapped, but blind, deaf, hard of hearing, 
come on, it's English, let's use it. Over on the Blindside community, we do have a community that people can join for discussing things. There's an email list, and you can also use it as a web-based forum if you prefer. And to join that, I always provide a link in the show notes, but you can send a blank email to the Blindside plus subscribe, that's the plus symbol, subscribe, at groups.io. That's the Blindside plus subscribe at groups.io. And this topic of people first language really got it rocking, man. We had a lot of people talking about people first language, most of whom were agreeing that people first language is counterproductive. It kind of transmogrified into a discussion. We have some pretty robust discussions on that community. Most of it, I think, conducted relatively respectfully, but you can still have robust discussions and be respectful. And gosh, not only did we cover people first language, but we also moved on to inappropriate accosting by people, uh, how we deal with those who have religious proclivities, who want to heal us from our blindness and all sorts of things. One contribution I do want to read you from the community came from Ian Lackey in the United Kingdom. And he says, I have just listened to the most recent podcast and I have to say, I agree with you wholeheartedly. I don't know about other parts of the world, but in the UK, the current favourite description seems to be people with sight loss. I suppose this is used because it avoids having to speak of blind and partially sighted people. Having been blind since birth, I suppose I could describe myself as a person with sight lack rather than loss. However, I still prefer to describe myself as blind, and I certainly won't be offended if people use the B word. I know that there are many people over here who are offended at the use of the term people with sight loss precisely because they have never had sight to lose. Despite the seemingly all-pervasive use of the people with sight loss descriptor, there seems to be no indication that RNIB is about to change its name anytime soon. If we want a descriptor which fits all people who are somewhere on what we now have to call the sight loss journey... <laughs> I can't think of a better one than blind and partially sighted. Hi, my name's Kushal. Um I live in Australia. I used to live in New Zealand. In fact, I was in Christchurch. Um, I listen to your podcasts weekly, and I find them really interesting. Now, with Ira, I'm really um, keen on, you know, I've, I've, I've been really fascinated by it. Is it? going to be available in New Zealand and Australia anytime soon. Um, or, yeah, can you, and if it's not, how can you get it? Um, is it, is it an, is it an application or how do you get it? Um, if you're using your smartphone, how do you, do you use it via the application or what? I'm afraid I don't have any information about what Ira's plans might be for rolling out. I have heard that they are actively engaging with people in the UK and that there may be a beta test program going on in the United Kingdom. Other than that, I don't know what their expansion plans might be. My recommendation in terms of describing Ira would be if you want to check their site, of course, their own site is at ira.io. That's A-I-R-A.io. And also I did describe the process of using Ira in my really long blog piece. It's about, <laughs> about 6,000 words, mosin.org slash Ira. But essentially at the moment, yes, it is a smartphone app for both Android and iOS. It has Siri capabilities as well, so it's pretty easy to summon up an agent. 
But for full use of the service, you not only need the app, but also the glasses, the physical hardware that they provide. You can use Ira with the phone's camera as well. So I hope that helps. And it would be nice to see the service officially down under sometime. Hey, Jonathan, how are you? My name is Farah. I've listened to you on several other podcasts. I've listened to you on, on FSCast also, the Freedom Scientific one and this one. And you do all, and, and you do a lot of great things. I want to comment back on the FS cast that you did back in November on the iPhone 10. And certainly I have an iPhone 10 to play with. I have to say that it's really, really nice. I actually have an iPhone 8, but I play with my dad's iPhone 10. And it's really, really nice. I like especially the face ID thing is very reliable. Um, you know that, you know that I have, you know that I could be seriously facing the phone and unlocking it. In iOS 11.3, it's actually become smarter, where not only if you set up the phone with voiceover, but also if you set up Face ID with voiceover, it'll be smart enough to turn attention off. And what I want to comment, too, is if you want the phone to unlock automatically, simply swiping up and waiting until it asks for the password will unlock also by itself. So... I truly appreciated your podcast. And just one more question. Why do you have to swipe up every time it sees your face? And thank you so much for that podcast. Keep it going. Thank you. Thanks for the really generous feedback. I appreciate that. That's kind of you. The feature that you mentioned where attention is automatically turned off when voiceover is on, when you set up Face ID, that's actually been there since iOS 11. Uh, When the iPhone 10 came out, they've had that. So that's not a new one, but it is a very handy one. I should say I actually turned attention back on and I do this when I'm out. When I was over in the States and I thought, oh man, you know, somebody could just take my phone from me or something like that. I turned attention on and I do find it a bit harder to unlock, but I'm surprised that I can actually do it as somebody who's congenitally blind, someone whose, you know, eyes look a bit kind of recessed or whatever. And, you know, the, the phone does need to see that you're looking directly at the phone but I can get it to work. It's a little bit more frustrating than having attention off, but it's not impossible. And for that additional peace of mind and security, especially when you're out, I do have attention on. So I I tend to turn attention off when I'm here at home and then I turn it back on again when I'm going out. I agree it would be nice to see a feature perhaps in iOS 12 where you can optionally turn on that the phone automatically completely unlocks itself when you unlock with Face ID, rather than having to slide up from the bottom. That would be a really good feature. I hope you pass that one on to Apple. Hey, Jonathan. It's Nathan from Pennsylvania in the United States. Um, I've been listening to your podcast recently and really, you know, enjoy listening to it and find, you know, all the information enlightening. Um, I recently got a Samsung Galaxy S8 Active, and it's a really good device. I, I actually got rid of my iPhone, which is crazy because I've been an Apple person since like the iPhone four, <laughs> but you know, I, I, you know, started playing with Android and realized that, you know, with a little bit of tweaking, you can make it really a great system. And there's a lot of, you know, customization that you get that you can never get on an iPhone. I mean, right now I have Eloquence running on my phone. I got, you know, what is it, three screen readers, two different Braille systems. You know, there's just the customization is really endless. Um, that being said, and I heard about your 
um, Blind Guy's Guide to the Galaxy. And I listened to that. And, you know, you use the voice assistant screen reader, which I totally agree. It's, you know, it was in the past easier to use than talk back. I would actually ask, you know, just as a heads up, you know, to try to reevaluate TalkBack with the Android Oreo 8.0 update. You know, between the two, I've noticed that Voice Assistant is a lot snappier and the gestures weren't as convoluted, but TalkBack read things better in, in general and was a little bit less responsive and laggy, not to mention the odd angular gestures. But since the Android 8.0 update, you know, well, first off, I'm going to, you know, disclaim that by saying that I just kind of suffered through and used TalkBack because it wasn't that bad and, you know, it read things better and some things were easier, so that's what I mainly used. But since the Android 8.0 update, Voice Assistant has practically stayed the same. No real changes, but TalkBack, you know, got a speed boost. It's a lot more responsive than, you know, it used to be. Almost on the same level as voice assistant, if not at the same level, it's hard to tell. But one thing that, you know, your big complaint, they actually fixed. The angular gestures are now, you know, somewhat easy to perform. You know, I can, you know, do it five times and get it correct, you know, say a minimum of three times out of five and a maximum of all five times. They're very consistent now and a lot easier to perform. I noticed before the update, if you did kind of like, say you're doing the right and then down, you had to do this really weird thing where you went right and then say going straight down, you went right up a tiny hair, then down, it would work a little bit better. But it was really complicated, convoluted, and kind of all over the place. But now you can just do a simple gesture, and it's like, okay, we're going to do that. So, you know, TalkBack is now, you know, a much more viable screen reader, and it's a really quite impressive. I mean, yeah, the angular gestures are weird, but keep in mind, you know, Everyone's. I've seen a lot of people say that TalkBack is the way it is because of multi-touch. You know, it was designed before multi-touch. I think the reason that they're keeping it the way they are is for a different purpose. It's one-handed mode. You know, there's nothing, there's very few things that, you know, with TalkBack that I know of that you need two hands for. You know, even with the iPhone, you adjust the rotor, you need two hands to spin the wheel unless you kind of cramp your phone into an awkward angle. But with the, you know, TalkBack, you just flick down to adjust your rotor and flick left and right. Flick up to adjust it back up. So if you want to go to, you know, headings on a web page, you know, when you're in the web page, you just flick down and the left and right change the headings and then back up to default to go to next and previous item. And it's it's quite, you know, an easy interface. And I almost can hate to say that I like the angular gestures now because they actually work. You know, I can access my notification shade with just, you know, a flick. And it's there. I don't have to use three fingers to swipe over to it says notifications and flick up or go to the home screen and swipe down with two fingers. You know, it's just there. And it works very well. And, 
you know, with every update that Android gets, it almost seems that it's just becoming more and more accessible. And, you know, I my phone very, very rarely glitches. And almost, you know, more, it's almost more reliable than an iPhone. I'm really starting to enjoy Android as an operating system. And, you know, I hope more people start to see it. I just wish there was a better, you know, community for, you know, iPhone or Android users. I mean, there's the inclusive Android site, but it just seems very stagnant. You know, I wish more people would adopt Android into their lives and, you know, start a community like Applevis that, you know, really can tackle it. Great message. And thanks for the positive feedback. It's nice to hear that you're getting on so well with uh, Android. A couple of things. Some people have asked me since I produced those podcasts, am I using the Galaxy? And the answer is no, I'm really not. I got the Galaxy for evaluation purposes in terms of apps. So we do quite a lot of work at Mosin Consulting with app developers, and we seek to ensure that their apps are accessible. And so we've had Android devices for a long time. I have not been a fan of the Angular gestures, and I'm still not a fan of the Angular gestures. You might want to go back into the podcast archives of this podcast, and you will eventually find an interview that we did with Victor Tsarin from Google. And he made the comment that the reason why TalkBack persists with the Angular gestures and the lack of multi-touch is so that sighted people or people with some vision can also run TalkBack and not have their gesture set sort of compromised or convoluted. In my opinion, if there's a market for that, I would like to see a separate product and I would like to see TalkBack fully embrace multi-touch for a more intuitive, easy gesture set. But it's great that you personally are getting on well with it. There's a lot of customization, as you say, a lot of things you can do. The big one for me, of course, is Braille. For example, when I was reading the email from Ian Lackey earlier, I was using my Braille display with the iPhone. I use Braille all the time. So you're talking about notifications. I'm pretty much exclusively using Braille with my phone. So there's just a key that you press, a chord combination that you press to bring down notifications. And although iOS Braille has become really rocky, with iOS 11, they are sorting out the kinks. And they did a lot of good things, I think, with iOS 11 Braille in terms of all that customization that's available now. You can customize pretty much every key on your Braille display and what it does. And for me, as a Braille user, you know, most hours of my day that I'm awake, that is a really big deal, the input and output available in iOS. But it is great to see that we are having the same degree of choice as everybody else. And long may that continue because just as some sighted people choose iOS and some sighted people choose Android, if we can make that same choice for whatever reason, then that's a good thing. I don't think Braille users yet have that choice, to be honest with you. I don't think uh, I don't think it's there. Some people don't like the angular gestures. Some people do, and that's fine. But I think the, the Braille issue is a showstopper for many Braille users. So I guess there are two things. There's no doubt Android's improving and it's adequate for some people. It, it's not what I could use right now, but two things would change that. One is the ability to program whatever gesture set you like. So if the Angular gestures were the default, but you could program multi-touch gestures as a replacement if you chose to do so, I'd be rocking with that. And the other is I really would like to see robust Braille support as part of TalkBack itself. Every other major screen reader now has Braille support, and I don't 
see any justification for TalkBack not having it too. And speaking of Braille, that segues us nicely into this really excellent email that came through over the week. Greetings, Jonathan, it says. A bit of background. My name is Marissa. I am a legally blind woman who will be turning 30 in December. Well, congratulations. But, but, but that means you turned 29 last December. So you are closer to 29 now than 30, right? So celebrate. Enjoy your youth. <laughs> anyway, I digress. I have worked formally as an assistive technology instructor teaching JAWS and other AT to clients. I reside in Los Angeles, California. My vision impairment is due to ROP, retinopathy of prematurity. I am interested in hearing from professionals in the blindness community regarding Braille, if it is practical to learn Braille as an adult, pros and cons. As I heard the phrase, Braille is dead, what are your thoughts? I have often wondered why Braille is not taught to children who are visually impaired, usable sight. I know in my case as a child, I used large print only, as I have usable vision, although I have elected to learn Braille as an adult. My thoughts are that while large print, which is what I use consistently throughout my life, is great, is sometimes not as widely available as Braille. Just as I use a variety of assistive technologies to accomplish tasks, I consider learning Braille a privilege, as my vision is stable, but one never knows. I consider myself a full-time JAWS user. I even uninstalled the magnification software I formerly used and adapted to using JAWS, even though I can see the screen some. However, as I master Braille, I am just learning. This will allow me to read what JAWS is conveying to me. Not to mention, knowing Braille makes you more likely to be employed. After all, without Braille, if one were to lose their sight, they would essentially be illiterate. Well, Marissa, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for that email. It's a brave thing that you're doing because you were robbed as a child. And while there are disagreements among blindness consumer organizations, one thing about which there is absolute unity is the critical nature of Braille and how important it is that a lot more attention be paid to the prognosis particularly for kids, so that even if their vision is functioning pretty well at the moment, if there's any kind of suggestion that maybe somebody will find it hard to work on the job because of eye strain or maybe the vision could deteriorate in future, then those children ought to be learning Braille. And there's a lot of progress being made on this. As for the Braille is dead thing, well, you only need to go to the technology conferences like CSUN, where I've just come from, and see the plethora of brand new Braille devices. One of the weaknesses of Braille in the past, of course, was its bulk. You had the Oxford Pocket Dictionary, and I seem to recall it was in either 26 or 36 Braille volumes. So you'd need a really big pocket to put the Oxford Pocket Dictionary in, right? But in fact, technology has changed that. And now you can have a device on which you are carrying thousands of books. You can also read for the first time. And I'm not talking about a computer reading. I'm talking about you reading uh, books from Kindle and iBooks and other services. So that for the first time in history, a Braille reader can be reading the bestseller at the same time as their colleague. So there's never been a better time to be adopting Braille. You see 
so many kids now with um, initiatives such as the Braille Challenge that the Braille Institute have been running for some time, the Braille Le- Readers are Leaders competition. It's such a vibrant thing, as it should be, because, of course, I mean, it, it's it's kind of sad that we even have to ask this question, and I certainly don't criticise you for asking it. But I think the simple answer to your question about whether Braille is dead or whether it's worth doing it is, the moment that sighted people give up their print and start using talking computers too, then let's talk about giving up Braille. Until then, Braille is the only means that a blind person has of literacy. Now, people get very upset sometimes when one says that. And when I read your email, I thought, oh boy, oh, that'll get the, the snot line going or something. But you are absolutely correct. I looked up literacy in the Oxford Dictionary which I consider the authoritative source on such things. And the definition of literacy in the Oxford Dictionary is very clear. It's the ability to read and write. So that's different from having a computer read back to you, a synthetic voice reading to you. It's different from an audio book. So you are getting the information, but you are not actually reading that information yourself. To me, to read something is to find some symbols and decode those symbols into uh, uh, language and decode that with your own brain. You are reading yourself. If it helps, I'm happy to talk about the ways in which Braille has just changed my life. I mean, I couldn't do the things I'm doing. I couldn't have read the emails on this show without Braille. When I go and give speeches, I have notes, of course, which I read from Braille. When I worked full-time in radio, there were times when they would have had to pull me off the air if I wasn't a Braille reader. So there were always situations where there was some urgent bit of advertising copy that somebody might have to rush in. And since there was a Braille embosser set up with a pretty simple setup so that the people involved didn't have to know any fancy Braille things, whenever there was something that Jonathan had to read, they'd just send it to the Braille embosser instead of the printer and bring it in, and I could just read it live on air. One of the most staggering examples of that for me, and I'll never forget it as long as I live, was when I was on the air and the first Gulf War broke out in early 1991. And they were bringing in bulletins to me while I was on the air, which I had to read. Now, if I wasn't a Braille user, I wouldn't have been able to do that. They would have said, get the blind guy off the air because he can't read these things as we put them in front of him. It was a very high-pressure situation, and Braille made that possible. But even the ability to just read something that you've written, so it might be just a quick note that you've jotted down for yourself. It might be using it for labeling, for identification. It doesn't have to necessarily be fancy. Just being able to read back something that you've written. I mean, it's fine. You can use some sort of device, that labels something with a barcode and a voice scanner or something like that. But, you know, that's another device you have to worry about. That's another thing to carry around. If you can use the brain that you've been given to just decode a series of dots that are there that identify a label, then that's so much simpler. So just identifying things uh, is, uh, is an important function as well. But for me, I've left the best for last. And that is all the stories over the years I have read to my kids and all the stories I look forward to reading to my grandchildren when that time comes. To be able to pick up a Braille book and read that story to them fluently, to help them read the same story, to discuss the pictures with them because there are Braille descriptions of the pictures. It's an incredibly bonding experience, and my kids still talk about the stories that I read to them. There's a wonderful Mercer Mayer book, and I forget which one, you know, the little critter books by by Mercer Mayer. 
And I used to read a lot of these to the kids. And there was one particular book I remember reading to Heidi one day when she was very little. And it ended with something like, um, I, I can't go to sleep without a story. And then there was a picture of little Critter's dad tucking him up in bed with a book reading a story. And Heidi take a, took a look at that picture and she said, how come that dad's not reading Braille? And so for her, it was just a normal thing that daddies read Braille and mummies read print, and they both read stories equally well. One of the heartbreaking things that I saw a long time ago, it was heartbreaking and inspiring, was a video that the NFB put together in the 1990s. And I don't know whether they still have it lurking about on their website or something, but um, it was called That the Blind May Read. And at the time, it featured um, a 40-something-year-old Barbara Pierce, whose name you may know because she edited the Braille Monitor for years. And she talked about um, how she had to learn Braille as an adult because she was deprived of it. But I believe it was her who spoke about how she was trying to struggle to read her child a book. And she had her nose buried in this book way close up trying to look at the print and get by and she was reading at a really slow clip and the kid snatched the book from this poor woman and said no daddy read because the, the child got fed up with how slowly the mother was reading the book through no fault of her own because she hadn't been exposed to literacy so you have embarked on a wonderful wonderful journey um, Braille's not going anywhere. Braille is exploding and expanding, and it's fantastic. And the other thing about Braille that I really, really love is the story behind it. The story behind Louis Braille, because it's something that we should always keep in mind. When Louis Braille devised this system, this priceless gift that he gave us that has lasted so long, sighted people at the school at which he taught were absolutely dead against it. They said blind people should read large raised print instead. Even though after Louis Braille taught the system to blind people, they had a fluidity about their reading that no one had ever seen before. And yet they even tried to burn Louis Braille's books because they were so dead against the system. And it just goes to show Braille is an important symbol of self-determination. It's an important symbol of empowerment and it is changing people's lives day in, day out. It is a wonderful, wonderful tool. And to anybody listening to this who did miss out on learning Braille as a child, it is never too late. Just as it's not too late when you see some of these adults who have come from environments where maybe they had dyslexia as a child or maybe there was some reading disability that wasn't diagnosed or maybe they were in a family that wasn't conducive to learning to read and they missed out. You see these adults coming to terms with that and saying, you know, I can... I can still do this. I can still learn to read. It's never too late for any blind person to learn how to truly read. That doesn't mean that there won't be naysayers. You know, you see in books and in movies when an adult who has been deprived of reading uh, tries and there are some naysayers who say, oh, what do you want to bother doing that for? You know, you're getting ideas beyond your station. So uh, be encouraged. There'll be lots of people who are supporting you. And as you rightly say, the statistics are very clear. We have a dire rate of unemployment in the blind community. There's some debate about how high it is, but we know it is very high. What we also know is that the majority of 
good Braille readers who want a job have a job. That's not a coincidence. So all the very best with your Braille reading journey and to anyone else who might be inspired by Marissa's story. Our feedback line is 719-270-5114. That's 719-270-5114. The Blind Side at Mosin.org is the email address. Thanks for listening to The Blind Side, a production of Mosin Consulting. On the web at Mosin.org.